from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. On July 16th, 2018, former CIA Director John Brennan wrote a tweet after watching President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin during a press conference after their historic meeting in Helsinki. He said in the tweet, quote, Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. Not only were Trump's comments imbecilic, he is wholly in the pocket of Putin. Republican patriots, where are you? End quote. On August 15th, the White House revoked John Brennan's security clearance, igniting a firestorm on many fronts, especially in the intelligence community. Not all of us agree with John Brennan's words or with the tone that he said those words in. But David Priest, a former CIA officer, manager, and presidential daily briefer, stood up for Brennan, along with many other former intelligence community officials. This is not an endorsement of what John Brennan said or why he said it. That is a secondary issue. The primary issue is that an apolitical, objective determination of whether somebody should have a security clearance or not should not be subjected to a political litmus test. So how will the revocation of John Brennan's security clearance and the threat by the president to pull them from other former intelligence community officials impact others that are still serving and other former intelligence community officials? We'll dig deeply into it on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. After President Donald Trump's meeting with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki on July 16, 2018, there was a press conference. Jonathan Lemire from the Associated Press asked President Trump a question about Russian interference. This was their exchange. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? So let me just say that we have Two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Why haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office of the Democratic National Committee? I've been wondering that. I've been asking that for months and months, and I've been tweeting it out and calling it out on social media. Where is the server? I want to know where is the server and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. My People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin 
Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. A day later, Mr. Trump said he misspoke. He meant to say he didn't see why it wouldn't be. This, while I'm not certain of it, is widely believed to be a part of why John Brennan took the approach that he took with his blistering tweet. He later spoke to Brian Williams of MSNBC about what was going through his head. Well, Brian, I thought that there was nothing that Donald Trump could say that would shock me, but I was wrong. I was just totally shocked at the performance of Donald Trump in Helsinki at a press conference with Vladimir Putin. Uh, I just found that it was outrageous. And even when the press, and thank goodness the press asked the right questions, even when the press gave him an opportunity to hold Russia accountable for anything, he chose to talk about Hillary Clinton, about his election, about service. He criticized American citizens, Secretary Clinton, and um, uh, others, as opposed to really taking advantage of a world stage with all the world's eyes upon them to point out how unacceptable Russia's behavior and interference in our election and the elections of other democratic countries around the globe is. But he just shirked those responsibilities. A few weeks later, Brennan's clearance was stripped. While it was a stunning move, it wasn't entirely a surprise. The Trump administration had announced in July that there was a list of former intelligence officials that might lose their clearances because they'd been critical of the president. James Clapper, former DNI, James Comey, former FBI director, Michael Hayden, former CIA director, Sally Yates, former acting attorney general, Susan Rice, former national security advisor, Andrew McCabe, former deputy FBI director, Peter Strzok, former FBI agent, Lisa Page, former FBI lawyer, and Bruce Orr, former associate deputy attorney general. Brennan, of course, was on that list and he was the first, at least so far, to have a clearance revoked. The intelligence community went ballistic. We spoke with David Priest, a former CIA officer and manager, former State Department employee, and a person who actually did the presidential daily briefing for a while. He spoke candidly with us on August 28th about what this means for the intelligence community. Well, the understanding that I have, and this may change day by day, is that John Brennan's security clearance has not been actually revoked. That is, he has not received any notification that this has happened or any process from the CIA, which apparently is the organization holding his clearances. He's only heard what the rest of us heard, which is the public announcement from the podium at the White House and the tweets from the president relating to this. But the context is this. Security-related officials in government jobs have the security clearance basically allowing them to see classified materials if they have a need to know on particular issues. When an employee leaves government service, generally that security clearance will lapse. It will not lapse right away because the government has invested a whole lot of time and resources into investigating these individuals and that is a resource that they want to keep if for some reason they want to bring the people back, either on some kind of a contract basis or perhaps as an employee in another agency or department. But as a general rule, if those clearances aren't used, they will fade away. An exception appears to be made for senior officials who leave, that is, the rank of director or deputy director, because at that level, two things happen. First of all, 
those people are often brought back for consultations. I know virtually every CIA director in the past several decades has made a habit out of bringing back former directors, the only people who really know what it's like to be in those shoes, to talk about classified issues of the day and get their insight and the benefit of their experience. Those conversations probably could happen most of the time without an active security clearance, but it would be a little bit harder to talk around the most sensitive issues and to get the real benefit of real-time feedback and real-time expertise from those former directors. The second reason why it makes some sense for former senior officials inside the national security community to retain their security clearances after leaving employment is because these are the people who very often, and almost entirely on a volunteer basis, spend their time on advisory commissions and boards looking at various aspects of the national security community. If you wanna have people with experience from both parties to come back and weigh in on everything from looking back at failures and how we can do better to reorganization plans, but things that involve some classified material, you want some of those officials to retain their security clearances to allow them to give back even after their time of service has ended. At the working level, these security clearances generally do not continue unless a government sponsor in a national security agency has said, we want that person for this particular job, and this particular job requires a security clearance. Therefore, we will continue to sponsor or allow that person's security clearance for a particular task where their experiences or skills are necessary. In that case, that is a government decision. The individual may want to keep the clearances to be eligible for such jobs, but an individual can't just keep a security clearance indefinitely. There must be a government official justifying the maintenance of that security clearance and its application to a particular project or contract for which the skills and experience of that officer are needed. The criticism that he has um, essentially leveled at President Donald Trump over time. Uh, some have said that he has been uh, overly critical and um, saying that the president uh, should face treason charges was a bridge too far. Where do you stand on that? Well, all of us who signed the various letters, the open letters from national security officials made clear that not all of us agree with John Brennan's words or with the tone that he said those words in. I fully defend John Brennan's right to political speech. The First Amendment guarantees it, and people across party lines signed those letters to defend his right to do it. As a former director, he should realize that his words are taken differently than the average citizen, and a very caustic tone or very aggressive stance will often be interpreted to be something that it is not, which is as if he's trying to telegraph something or he's talking about hidden secrets that not everybody has. In this case, no, John is just expressing his political opinion in much less strident tones than many pundits that are out there. But it does look different coming from a former CIA director. So it's important to recognize all of the people who signed that first letter of former CIA directors and deputy directors uh, objecting to the weaponization of security clearances and those of us who signed the letter the next day, the 60, I believe, CIA officials, former CIA officials, who expressed dissatisfaction with the move, and then the much larger letter from the wider national security community, 
a couple of days later, later from retired officers from all across the military, national security and law enforcement community. Everybody signed on to the statement saying, this is not an endorsement of what John Brennan said or why he said it. That is a secondary issue. The primary issue is that an apolitical objective determination of whether somebody should have a security clearance or not should not be subjected to a political litmus test. What's the message the revocation sent? It sends two messages. One is to former officials who have the right to speak out publicly. Traditionally, some have, many have not. It sends a message to those officials of, I have very limited tools by which I can reward and punish you as president of the United States. And I'm going to try to use one of those. If you talk about me in a way that I don't like, I'm going to take one of the few moves that I have left, which is to revoke a security clearance. That's how it relates to John Brennan. The message to currently serving officials is potentially more dangerous. It could be that some currently serving officials are thinking, wait a minute, if my career, if my job prospects, I've been putting my head down and just doing my job, but if I say anything publicly that I'm allowed to do as a U.S. citizen, but it's interpreted the wrong way, or if something I say rubs the wrong way, the people in power, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose access to this career that I've been working in? I haven't seen that happening. Of course, there is the threat to a current Department of Justice official that's been put out there by the president and stated at the White House. Most of the intelligence officers I know are people that would not be intimidated by that. The ultimate risk is not just that they might lose their careers or their jobs for speaking out politically, but that they might think twice about giving a hard message to the president or those around him as an objective analysis of something going on in the world. The job of intelligence analysis at its core is to tell truth to power, not to repeat back a policy line but to describe the world as you see it. If there's something that intelligence analysts are seeing on the ground that is not something the president wants to hear, the pride of the intelligence community is to deliver the message the best way that the intelligence community can. If there's now a question in some of their minds about if we deliver an uncomfortable truth to the president, is he gonna lash out and take a personal revenge on us for that? That is something that gets in the way of the entire purpose of having an intelligence community to support national security policymakers. That's David Priest, former CIA officer and manager and former deliverer of the president's daily brief. And when we come back, he'll tell us about the international ramifications of John Brennan's security clearance revocation. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. We've been talking on this program about the impact of the revocation of former CIA Director John Brennan's security clearance. David Priest, a former CIA officer and manager, has been talking with us. And we take a look at how this latest dust-up between the president and the intelligence community might resonate overseas. What about the international message? 
It's hard to say what the message is overseas, in part because we don't see the same kind of open commentary in most of our allies and, frankly, some of our countries that are not allies. We don't see a lot of public commentary about what's going on here. The issue that could come up is one that was raised long ago when the president was sharing some intelligence obtained by a liaison relationship with the Foreign Intelligence Service in theory, with the Russians in the Oval Office. That was the reporting. Combine that with this, and it would not be surprising if some foreign intelligence services are questioning whether they need to give the same level of detail to the United States government that they have in the past, because some of their assumptions about the way that national security information would be handled in that relationship could be jeopardized. The chill in the relations between the U.S., uh, intelligence community and the president has been there since day one. Uh, and this doesn't seem to have uh, done done any favors for that relationship. It seems to have worsened it. How would you characterize the state of the relationship? Yeah, it has been fascinating to watch, J.J., because from the beginning we had two sides to the relationship between Donald Trump and those around him and the intelligence community. On the one hand, You had the president taking his intelligence briefings during the campaign and actually saying afterwards some nice things about the briefers, saying that there's a reason why it's called an intelligence community and then continuing to receive the briefings. That actually continued well into the presidency, in fact. The president has continued to take, not on an everyday basis, but then again, few presidents have, but to take intelligence briefings well, and that those was, appear that, to be continuing. That was a question I wanted to ask. How unusual yeah. is it to not take a briefing every day? Um, it is very usual not to take a briefing every day, in uh-huh. fact. Why? The, the president's daily brief is both a printed document and an event. Mm-hmm. Most presidents, most of the time since the mid-1960s when that document was first created, have chosen to keep it as a written document and have not taken daily in-person briefings from intelligence officials. The only presidents to do so on a daily basis were Gerald Ford for the first year of his presidency, George H.W. Bush for the four years of his term, and then George W. Bush for all eight years of his term. Other presidents have taken briefings sometimes, either a few times a week, sometimes more rarely. This would include Bill Clinton, this would include Barack Obama, and this would appear to include Donald Trump. But the president's daily brief is also a written document that is delivered to them. All of the presidents appear to have received this document. We don't know if Donald Trump is reading it every day on the days that he's not getting an in-person briefing, but we should not equate the president's daily brief written document with the actual briefings. The side of the relationship that appears to be working is that Donald Trump has invited the intelligence officers back. That is, there still continues to be, by all appearances, a president's daily brief briefing that occurs semi-regularly. That's all on the positive side. On the negative side, we heard things coming from candidate Trump during the campaign that we hadn't heard about intelligence before in a modern U.S. election, and some attacks against the intelligence community, most notably, but not solely, about the assessments of Russian interference in the 19, and sorry, in the 2016 election, what is more akin to information of warfare than just mucking around. That has continued. 
And given the post-Helsinki environment, when the president appeared to be siding with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies, Mm -hmm. I wrote for Foreign Policy magazine that we've actually entered into a second time of troubles. That was the term used for the 1970s when the intelligence community, specifically the CIA, had been found to be doing things against its legal and ethical mandate. This time of troubles is different, however, because this time the intelligence community appears to be doing exactly what society intends it to do, which is describe the situation it's seeing accurately and in a timely fashion and deliver that to policymakers. The trouble this time is the chief policymaker, the first customer for the intelligence community, doesn't want to hear it and is publicly pushing back against the assessments of the intelligence community. That is a different relationship than we have seen before. And you believe maybe that this is a part of the reason why he is considering some other names in terms of possibly revoking their clearances because of the pressure that they have put on him and the administration with reference to his uh, actions or non-actions as it relates to Russia. It's hard to imagine that that's not a part of it because we can take the reasons that have been offered and dismiss those. The first reason offered was well, John Brennan has been talking erratically. I've, I've known John for 20 years, and erratic is not in the top 100 list of adjectives I would use for him. And the others on that same list of people that they did not like the speech of, some of them are even more measured and careful about what they say. So that one is a hard one to buy. Then the president told the Wall Street Journal that he was doing it because of their involvement in the Russian, the rigged witch hunt, I believe he called it. Well, that may be a thought for some of the individuals involved, but it's hard to imagine that Michael Hayden, who was CIA director for George W. Bush and was let go by the Obama administration, had nothing to do with the eight years of Obama's presidency and therefore had no inside information in or relation to the Russia investigation There's no reason to believe that that in itself is related to Russia. He wasn't involved at all, and yet he was on that same list. That leaves one big reason, which is that Michael Hayden is out there saying that the president just isn't doing a very good job with intelligence and national security, and the president doesn't like hearing it. Mm. A couple of people have said, fine, take it. I don't care. You can have this security clearance. What's the logic behind that, and uh, what do you think of that? There are a couple of things. First of all, the security clearances aren't that useful to most former senior officials. They're more of a convenience for currently serving officials who want to get their expertise, get their insight, bring them in on commissions and boards of advice. For most former, especially former directors and deputy directors, the security clearance doesn't give them anything. If they're going to write a book, if they're going to go on national TV, if they are going to talk to corporations, none of that is actually using the security clearance. That is using the skills and experience they built up over a career, but it is not linked directly to the security clearance. So there's very little effect to that. In fact, what I saw several senior officials do, and I'll put out retired Admiral McRaven as one of these, publicly saying, if you think that we have to avoid saying what we think as Americans in order to keep having the security clearance, I'm turning mine in now. I don't want it anymore if that's even implied Mm -hmm. in the continuing relationship. And certainly that's the attitude that many others have put out there publicly since then is that a security clearance is not a political litmus test. The security clearance should be something absolutely separate from the personal political views of the holder. 
You know, one of your colleagues, former colleagues from the CIA and a man that I've known for a long time and who is a very honorable man uh, and a very smart fella, I saw him lose his cool on TV. Uh, and I don't spend a heck of a lot of time watching television because I have my own mm-hmm. reporting work to do, but I do keep up with some things. And I happened to see Philip Mudd on uh, CNN not long ago lose his cool over this matter of keeping a security clearance And there was a suggestion that it's used and it's kept uh, the security clearance for financial purposes. What's your thought Mm -hmm. on that? In Phil's case particular, I I don't have access to Phil Mudd's tax returns nor his uh, pay schedule. But he was very direct and adamant against the other person on the panel that he was speaking with that he was not getting any money from any government contracts because of his security clearance. And he stated that directly. As I recall, then the other panelist stated that Phil was a liar. And on the one hand, it would be nice if all of us had the cool, emotional wiring of a robot and we could take personal attacks like being called on live television a liar. Yeah. And we could all internalize that and not react. On the other hand, I understand his emotional response to being called a liar on national TV when he had stated directly he does not. Yeah. get any money because of the security clearance. That doesn't speak to whether others do. There yeah, may be other people who do have jobs that require security clearances and that enables them that's my question. to get that income. That's my question. It's not the thing about Phil being called a liar. The, sure. the question I'm asking is, does it really matter? Does Is a security clearance necessary? Does it do anything for former officials uh, from a financial point of view? Well, there are some jobs that can only be held with a security clearance, and that goes for many jobs that are actual U.S. government employees. It also goes for a whole number of jobs that are either former military officers who are now working for defense contractors, former intelligence officers who are working for companies that still support the intelligence community. Those are for very specialized skills and expertise that the government decides they want to pay for. And if a security clearance is required for those jobs, then the people doing the jobs must have that security clearance. So with a half step removed, absolutely, a security clearance can help people get positions in their desired area of work that do bring in income. The security clearance itself is not monetized. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you can't take your security clearance, print it out on a card and sell it on eBay. Mm -hmm. There is no cash value for a security clearance. However, If you happen to be, and I'll give an example here, if you happen to be an expert on information technology systems and you know how to fix certain computer networks and certain programs very well, well, there are jobs you can get in probably 20,000 different corporations, large and small across the U.S., the nonprofit sector, but you can also get jobs in the U.S. government. And some of those, based on what's being held on those computer systems, might require a security clearance. Would your salary be higher because you can work with a security clearance on a government site, even if you're a private sector employee? Oh, almost certainly, because a security clearance is not something that everybody has. Supply and demand says it might get some additional money. But there are also some restrictions that come with that in terms of possible future employment issues, in terms of the Hatch Act, which governs anybody with information that might be a government employee or working on certain programs. So there is a trade-off that comes with that. The bottom line is the security clearance allows people to have jobs they might not otherwise have to apply their skills to national security problems, and they might get 
a bump in pay because of that. But it is not up to the individual to monetize that security clearance. There has to be a government official Mm -hmm. justifying the need for that officer or that former officer to have that clearance to hold a particular job and to recertify that to make sure that that is still the case. What's your situation from a security clearance point of view? I no longer have a security clearance. I'm in the boat with uh, retired Admiral McRaven, which is that if I had it, I would gladly give it up at this point uh, to protest this weaponization of security clearances. But I am not in that boat. And I can say with authority that the president's assertions that people get corporate board assignments and such things because of a security clearance, well, I had a security clearance after I left employment for a period of time, and I never got offered a board assignment. Maybe I was talking to the wrong people. (laughs) But the vast majority of people I know who held security clearances and then leave government employment have no interest in pursuing those kinds of opportunities. They continue to support the intel community and national security agencies if there is the right match for their skills and expertise. A whole lot of them would just like to retire or work on something else entirely. Okay. Any final thought? This has been a fascinating conversation. Anything you want to add? No, a great chat, JJ. I think we've hit on all the major issues. The big one, of course, being the one we've danced around and only jumped into a few times, (laughs) which is the primary issue that has come up in the last 10 days on this since the revocation of John Brennan's security clearance. The issue actually isn't the security clearances. The primary issue is the First Amendment right to free speech without reward or punishment by the government. It's easy to focus on the security clearances, and I hope we can have a legitimate, calm, cool conversation about whether these legacy clearances that former directors and deputy directors have, are those a good idea? What's the benefit? What's the downside? I, I think that's a good conversation to have. It is. But now is not the time to have that conversation because there's a first issue, which is the undermining of a fundamental political right in our representative democracy. All right, David, thank you. Thanks, JJ. Just a couple of footnotes. We reached out to the White House for some response on this, and they declined. We also reached out to John Brennan to hear firsthand his side of the story. And his spokesman got some dates and times from us, but obviously they weren't able to make it work because we did not hear back from them. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Please, subscribe to our podcast, and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. If you like my show, you're not going to want to miss No Excuse with John Taffer. Shut it down and listen to John, the award-winning hospitality legend, as he brings his straight talk and unapologetic approach to daily topics and current events. You don't want to miss his latest interviews with Dennis Miller and Dave Portnoy, better known as El Presidente from Barstool Sports. So download No Excuses each week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. 
Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.